Have you ever wondered whether the problems in the world today would exist if we had deeper connection to ourselves, others, and the environment, and acted from that place? Welcome to the Conscious Action Podcast with your hosts, Brian Burneman and Kayla Grimbill, who believe that connection is the key to taking conscious action as individuals and creating a better world. We are here to raise awareness and inspire meaningful action by sharing stories, knowledge, and conversations with thought leaders and change makers. From sustainability to well-being and everything related to conscious living, our mission is to empower you to be the change that you want to see in the world. Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Conscious Action Podcast. I am Brian Berneman, your host, and I have the pleasure for this episode to be joined by Richie Hardcore, all the way here from Auckland as well, but of course, each person at home. And thank you so much, Richie, for taking the time to, to be here with us and to share what I'm sure will be a wonderful and juicy conversation. And to start, I would love for you to share with everyone listening, who is Richie? <laughs> I'm still trying to find the answer myself, I suppose, sometimes. Um, but the things that I do, in, I guess, in that, I guess, like, my work, like, professionally, has all sort of stemmed out of a desire to understand myself. Um, and the work that I do is focused on working around men and masculinity, uh at the moment it, that started i started out doing public speaking and education work and advocacy work around stopping family violence and domestic violence maybe i guess like for the better part of the last 10 years and that's evolved upwards to looking at some of those root drivers of violence and and that leads to me to where i am now which is talking about um, masculinity like And, and the cultural expectations of boys and men to fit into particular boxes of behavior. And those boxes of behavior can lead to a whole lot of psychological distress and a whole bunch of negative outcomes. So I talk about that in schools and in businesses and anywhere that really has an interest in um, having those conversations. I run a little workshop share it series with the support of the Ministry of Social Development Um, focused on getting like the martial arts community involved in these sort of talks as well, because outside of this space, I've been a martial artist for 28 years. I started fighting in like freestyle Taekwondo when I was a teenager, when I was 13. And then I moved into fighting in Muay Thai and I was, you know, successful here in, in the, in the, in the bygone days before the sport <laughs> is what it is now. And, retired from fighting and moved into coaching so I sort of bring those things together <clears throat> I guess being in the gym all the time training fighters training a lot of uh you know predominantly men and boys keeps me quite grounded in a, a stereotypically masculine environment I suppose mm. and that informs my work when it comes to working with you know schools and other organizations because I think activists and educators and academics can get quite siloed and forget about the reality of things and often speak in just in ways that just don't resonate with, with, with people who aren't having these conversations all the time. Um, and I've, I've gone back to university and I'm slowly working through my master's degree, looking in all of this stuff. And every time I open like a paper or an, you know, an academic body work, I'm trying to cite from, I'm like, oh my God, no wonder people were like, 
don't get engaged when mm. when a lot of activists try and use hyper-academic language to explain these concepts. So, yeah, that kind of is the by and large of it. I do mental health sort of advocacy work. You know, that's a, it's an emerge, emergent, I don't, I don't know, what's a mental health advocate, you know, like, but um, I talk about mental health. I talk about the fact that I used to want to kill myself and I had a lot of depression and uh, I didn't even know that I was depressed uh, when I was going through that, that journey from about 2011 till about 2016, 17, mm. I was, had really, uh hugely fluctuating mental health you know and, and within all of that i was working in alcohol and drug harm reduction for the ministry of health slash organ council i sat, i did a radio show with a guy called mike king about uh, mental health he'd get me to fill in for him sometimes and we would have these big discussions about mental illness and mm. it's kind of led to yeah, this kind of advocacy and education space mm. where I underpin my personal experiences with, you know, research because mm. I don't want to just be sharing my opinions on things. Yeah. I like to ensure that it's grounded in some sort of empirical evidence. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. Like, I mean, there's so much in there and, and so wonderful that some some of us are fortunate enough to be able to to do this type of important work and and it's what we want to do as well with our time uh it's so wonderful when when we're able to to make a living however that looks um to and doing it with purpose and doing it with something that has a meaning for us and for our communities and i think of what you do it's so important and and i it's really interesting so And I would love for you to share a little bit about this is that when I actually met you, I had a completely different idea of who you were um, based on, you know, like just I, I have only seen some things online about you fighting my tie that, you know, and and that and I was like, oh, this dude is actually really different than what I picture in my head. <laughs> And and I've heard you talking a couple of times and, and I think that it's really, really wonderful to be able to to do this work that you do on on as well what does it mean to be a man and, and what are the, the expectations and what are all of the different things that that a society, especially here in New Zealand, you know, each society is quite different and each culture has its differences. But what we perceive and what is reality and how we experience all of that. I think that it's really, really interesting from, from that standpoint. And I would love for you to, to share and to explore a little bit more on, on what are these expectations that, or these judgments that we have and how that actually messes with where we're going as men, as society, and how that plays a role in it. Yeah, for sure. Well, we all sort of grow up absorbing the concepts around us, right? Like for me and for a lot of my generation, uh, and then this continues today, we're expected as boys to do things like take risks, use violence as a problem-solving tool, 
we have a valorization of physical activity, of making lots of money, of scoring lots of girls. Uh, we have a general consensus that to be soft and gentle and anything stereotypically feminine is a negative thing. And that flows on to a degree of homophobia. And these things are acculturated into us quite um, even unintentionally, I think. You know, I'm raising my son, well, my stepson, and he comes home and he's like, oh, so-and-so said this boy was gay because it's like a just a given that associations for seven-year-old boys that gay is negative. But mm. when you stop and explain what that looks like, people tend to understand it if you can give them a um, reframing of those ideas, right? And that's essentially sort of the, the work that I do. It's not to say there aren't differences between men and women. There are. Like across all averages, there is, you know, humans are a dimorphic species. There are two sexes and biologically evolutionary biologists will explain that we do have some degree of difference in our behaviors and our interests, right? But the socialization that we can either steer us away from things or double down on things is the sort of space where we find the hope in, right? Hmm. You know, across, you know, across the sexes, boys and men do tend to be a bit more aggressive and have a higher predisposition towards an interest in like mechanical things or violence. But that doesn't mean to say that we have to be uh, truck drivers who like fighting, right? <laughs> like if we, if we, if we, if we only give young boys toys that encourage violence and are disdainful towards emotional vulnerability, or we tease the kids who are into poetry and art and uh, music, and we only valorize the kids who are into like rugby and boxing, then that's where we get all the problems that we have. Because we were always trying to push, you know, I would talk about, you know, we have a whole, we have the whole same process for, for girls and women too, right? And we have these cultural ideas of femininity that girls and women are expected to, to fit into. And when they don't, we see all the sorts of associated problems. It's like eating disorders and self-harming behavior. And it's the same with boys and men. We're always trying to push these like sort of, uh, square pegs through round holes, right? Mm. Because none of us can actually really live up to this this ideal of having like a six-pack all the time and earning a six-figure salary and being able to, you know, perform all these athletic pursuits effortlessly and have like a harem of beautiful women just dying to do our laundry, right? Like those are all stupid ideas that are presented to us as how we should be and they're presented to us through either social media if you look at music videos if you think about the jokes and stories that we hear in the schoolyard or in sports club things our parents might say to us or our relatives might say to us and we kind of culturally enforce these uh, stereotypes you know Mm. i don't know about you but i was not always like a jock covered in tattoos who is good at fighting. Like I was a pretty sensitive kid um, who liked reading books and I kind of stuck to myself. Although I was like, I guess, extroverted in some ways, 
I had a lot of dysfunction in my childhood, which made me, made me have very low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And so um, I didn't like rush to play sport or any of these sorts of things. I liked playing Dungeons and Dragons and like role playing <laughs> games and shit. I used to like paint figurines and stuff, right? Like, <laughs> I would stay at home and read books and like watch romantic comedies by myself and like dream of holding someone's hand. And it wasn't until I got into stereotypically masculine pursuits that I got like social acceptance and social approval. And that's mm. quite interesting to look back on because yeah. I don't do it consciously, but. You know, I've told this. I've told the story before, but there were, I guess, two two key moments when I realized that like physical strength and fighting were like a, a social pass. And one was getting in a fight at school with some boys who came to beat up my friend, and then everyone at school stopped calling me a clown and a homo, and I was like the man, hmm. a- and I got cool. You know, I got cool, and so I cut my hair's naturally very curly and I used to dye it pink and I used to have a nose ring and I used to be like real alternative and emo and into grunge and like the opposite of jock culture right I like I really wanted to position myself outside of that but I rebuilt my identity into this more masculinely approved identity Mm. so I started wearing like basketball singlets and baggy jeans and like you know got my first tattoo when I was 18 and this wasn't conscious. It was just like everyone liked me better. Mm-hmm. Dudes liked me better. Women liked me better. Like, and in some parts, I liked myself better. And that's not an inherently bad thing. Like, it was good that I started having some self confidence that came with sport and social recognition. But it was also kind of veiling the more sensitive parts of myself right like i had to shut off bits myself from 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 public life and you posture and you 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 brag about i don't know the street fight that you got into at the party or uh the girl who asked you out and all these sorts of negative parts that come with the social expectations of masculinity so that was one way of my pathway into manhood i guess and i like i said like i had quite a dysfunctional childhood and i remember once i like you know, beating up my my dad you know like because my dad was an abusive alcoholic at times and I love my dad my dad is part of this journey my dad is someone who had his own traumas as a child in an era where we didn't talk about masculinity or mental health right mm-hmm. and so with a whole family history of mental illness that I've been uncovering to figure myself out he was born into he just poured alcohol onto these sorts of stereotypical tropes that we're talking about Mm. and you know my grandfather was an alcoholic my great-grandfather was an alcoholic who came back from world war one traumatized and so my dad had his struggles right and his struggles meant that he didn't know how to express himself or heal or deal with his pain Mm. only could try and escape it with like ridiculous amounts of alcohol and that meant sometimes he was a dick and this one time like i punched him out pretty good and that was a strangely, um, what was that? That was kind of like the strangely masculine taking of my power. Mm. You know what I mean? In a very unhealthy, dysfunctional way. Mm. But I, I, I suddenly felt like, oh, there's some worth in my physicality and my strength and my ability to hurt people, right? Yeah. And, and unfortunately, many people 
come to that and never leave it. Mm. And I've been fortunate that I've had role models and positive interventions and education and that has steered me away from that because my other path that I could have been on is like many of my friends into like gangs and violence and drug addiction or self-destructive behaviors, you know, like a lot of my friends, people I love very dearly are, are still stuck in that place Mm. or they're doing crime or they're, or they're in jail or have been to jail. Some have killed themselves, not all of them, but a good number of people I know might be high functioning addicts, right? Mm. They might be musicians and, and they live in worlds that normalize unhealthy coping mechanisms, right? Yeah. And I, I'm just grateful to the good people in my life who've steered me away from that <laughs> because I'm not sure if you're familiar with how one's brain develops. When you grow up with some trauma, your brain responds really differently to different situations, right? Like my brain, when it comes to like a fight or flight situation, is like, boom, straight to the amygdala. I'm like, yes, like I feel alive. Like, oh, there's a threat. Like I do well in the chaotic Mm. space. And if I feel challenged by men in particular, but also like, adverse things anger and and feeling my body get defensive and bristle and preparing for conflict is kind of where i go to right Mm. but i've been socialized away from that Mm. so as much as i might feel like beating someone up when they're a dickhead i don't right Mm. right whereas whereas other people don't And this is an interesting thing I think we need to talk about when we're talking about like crime and punishment and restorative justice. Who makes up our prisons? It's people from economically marginalized neighborhoods who have long histories of trauma, often with undiagnosed mental health issues and and substance abuse. Mm. And it's not a rational decision to beat someone up when they cut you off in traffic. It's Mm. wrong, but they're not like making it like in a calculated way it's like their brain goes straight into this very primal space and they act out on that yeah. and that does again it doesn't excuse the violence that they might perpetrate but it does explain it and if we want to stop violence we need to have that conversation mm-hmm. how do you help people have really long-winded approaches to dealing with the trauma that they experienced as kids how do you help create a society where we don't get people to double down on the shitty stereotypes about violence. Mm. Because if you associate with people who have a belief that violence is a good problem solving tool and you are neurologically predisposed to respond from an emotive space and thus act out violently, chances are going to be violent, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So I've got like one subset of friends who when someone is a dick or disrespectful, they're like, fuck, just give them a hiding, (laughs) right? Mm. Like there's like a common New Zealand thing. Did you give them a hiding? I don't know Mm. if you, I don't know how long you've been around here. (laughs) Right. Like, but (laughs) you've heard the phrase, did you get Mm -hmm. a hiding, give them a hiding, right? And then another subset of friends who are like, well, violence isn't the answer. Mm. And, and, and we need a bit more of the latter and less of the former, right? Yeah, it's yeah. it's not demonizing the human experience of anger. Like we're all meant to be 
angry at some stage in our lives. Like anger is a normal human response and it can actually be really protective. And for mm. me, anger has driven me to a degree of surpassing where I came from, right? Like anger made me want to go to university, mm. right? Anger made me want to be sober. Anger made me want to be a better version of myself and be more than my dad was. Mm. But it's not everything because it eventually got to the point where it was like burning me out. Mm. And that's where I've sort of come to with like activism and advocacy work. Like I find so much of it is just this blind fury dressed up in hyper academic jargon Mm. and it's destructive, not constructive. And, and, And that doesn't work, man, because no one likes being made to feel bad or told that they're a piece of shit. And mm. You can only coerce people's behavior change for so long until eventually it stops working and they might push back. So yeah, I'm glad that I've come to sort of terms with that because, mm. you know, like as an academic and an activist, I guess it doesn't work. It's not like fit for purpose as a tool. And in my personal life, anger's kept, big walls between me and people I really love. And it's made me be a dick, Mm. you know, not physically. I've never like beaten up people or been abusive, but I've been judgmental and I've been closed minded and narrow minded. And uh, I guess myopic because Mm. my anger made me think that this is the only way to be. And this is the only way to do something. And if you didn't do that, you were fucking lazy piece of shit or you're weak. Mm. When we think about masculinity, it's about strength, right? And I can I can tough my way through like all my problems if I just went running more and did more press ups, more pull ups, and like mm. one more kickboxing fights. Yeah, and all my pain would go away, right? And mm. anyone who just like moaned and like was poor me was fucking weak. And it's not it's not that simple, nor that black and white. Yeah, and there's you know from everything that you're sharing, there's so much in, in that because I think. I'd, there's there's some things that are really important. This is, of course, based on how we are conditioned and how we as society have created these different uh, stereotypes and how we are being drawn to have this normal life, whatever that means. And as you said, like that's a little bit of bullshit. Like that doesn't exist really. And what that is doing as well is that is preventing people from dealing with what is actually happening from both a mental health perspective and an emotional perspective. Um, I am, I've been blessed enough to, to live in a really loving house without much um, trauma uh, or without any abuse or any kind of issues like that that a lot of people have. And, and I was really fortunate to to be in, introduced to meditation and mindfulness and Buddhist perspectives uh, so that I could understand what is happening when something happens to me and how do I choose to respond instead of how do I react, which my reactions were based on all of the things that I have learned, as you said, like, Yes, like, of course, some people, you know, as you were saying, we have either that fight or flight or freeze response. And depending on where you are with that, that's what we're going to to do in terms of reaction. But I was lucky enough to to be able to 
to understand, okay, how do I process this? And then what is actually going to serve in a given situation in, in terms of does this need to be escalated or does this need to be, okay, let's take some time, let's figure this out, let's talk about it. But if I don't have the, the tools to work internally, then that makes it hard. And as you're saying, like as a society, we've been conditioned in a lot of ways, uh, both men and women in different roles. Um, and when we are wanting to fit in and to belong, which is something that we all want, we want that feeling of belonging, what you were sharing when you were younger and you get that feedback from people, oh, if I do this, actually people like me? then I want to do more of that, even if that's not what you want to do all of the time. And I think that the lack of education in this plays a huge role. And and one of the things that I would love for you to, to explore a little bit more in depth is the place, not only of the lack of education in that, in that but also of trauma. Because as you were saying, traumatized people then usually inflict that trauma because it isn't processed, as you were saying with your family, like alcohol, 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 or a lot of different things, but that is just one way of coping with things. But most of the people, and I work sometimes within the space of the healing perspective of that, is that we haven't dealt with our traumas, our ancestral trauma and all of that, which means that somehow we are still carrying that on. And until the moment that we look at that and face it and heal it, then we cannot move past it. Yeah, I love that. I think about that a lot and I'm still learning about um, like epigenetics, right? Like that cultural transmission and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That cultural transmission, historical transmission, and the how our environments can activate or not activate different parts of ourselves, right? And I'm not an expert in this, so take everything as like a work in progress, please, dear listener, dear Brian. <laughs> but I'll talk from my own perspective, right? So... Yeah, my dad's an alcoholic and I grew up uh, with a lot of dysfunction and the cops come into my house and I was just talking to Claire, my partner, about this last night actually because we're watching this show called Shameless and it's really, really triggering for me and I find myself crying a lot during it and it's a lighthearted show but it's about this very, very dysfunctional family where the father is a chronic alcoholic and the actor gets it so right. Mm -hmm. right like so right and i'm like fuck this like this is gnarly right mm -hmm. and anyway my father's an alcoholic my grandfather apparently is, was an alcoholic he died when i was maybe 12 so i didn't really know um my great-grandfather came back from the war traumatized from the war and left my great-grandmother to raise my grandfather by herself in an era where they didn't have the social supports or the social acceptance of single mothers. So my father's father's side of the family and my father's mother's side of the family. I just learned last year that my great grandmother on that side of the family was put into Kingsey, which is like a mental institute, <laughs> like, mm. like some one flew over the cuckoo's nest shit. Right. And I don't know much about it. And I'd really like to learn more about it because I find it, there's some healing for me and some peacemaking and sense-making and understanding 
what happened in my heritage, yeah? Mm. So either way, there's a long fucking history of, like, dysfunction, mm. right? doesn't mean I'm genetically going to be dysfunctional, but how those traumas are passed down through behavior is definitely going to have some way in how I turned out, right? So I thought I had all my shit figured out, but I didn't because when I was 31, uh, I had an affair and my marriage ended really badly and I still carry 10 years later all this guilt and shame and pain around that and I'm working through all of that. But when I look back at how that happened, I'm just recreating my family history, right? Mm -hmm. So we gravitate to what's comfortable and what's normal to us, yeah? And what's comfortable and what's normal to me is fucking chaos and drama and crazy people because mm -hmm. that's what I grew up with. And I was talking to Claire last night about this. When I was like um, a teenager and I thought about the women that were romantically or sexually attracted to me, looking back, oh, my God, this one had a um, heroin problem or uh, this one was sexually abused as a child. And we, I had these conversations adults with these women. Or, um, you know, I was talking to, like, one of my old best friends who I had, like, some sexual intimacy with when I was as a teenager. Her dad was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. uh, when I think about basically all of my ex-partners had a trauma which matched my trauma, right? And so I fall into this role of trying to be a, a rescuer, if you think about it, in like a codependency. It's like, okay, right, how do, I, how, do, how do I save you from yourself? How do I, but at the same time, enable your shitty behaviors, which are damaging to all of us? And, and, and it comes from like a really deeply loving place, but it also comes from a really deeply wounded place because any relationship should be two 50% equations each living their own full journey and navigating the space in between. But often our relationships would become unbalanced or one-sided and um, unhealthy in, 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 in that regard, right? And it just made for just unhealthy dynamics within relationships. Yeah. Now, and, and I was in this long-term relationship through my 20s, which, which became a marriage, and I exited that not because I didn't, love my ex-wife i still love my ex-wife even though we haven't talked in years but because i didn't know how to navigate things when they became a bit peaceful mm. you know like peace was uncomfortable i guess looking back i didn't know how to i didn't know what my role was anymore that i wasn't rescuing her anymore mm. and so what i did in you know, I, I'm work, I've come to learn that you don't know what you don't know till you know it, right? Like, forgive yourself for all the things that you weren't aware of. But I ended up leaving her for a woman who had a lot of personality disorder issues and, like, historically was a heroin user. And I'm like, well, a new project. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I'll fucking go over here and, like, make things exciting and interesting here. Do you think that worked out? Like, I, I ended up hurting the person profoundly that I love the most mm -hmm. and blew my own life up. Like went from like having a home and being married and, you know, I just graduated with an honors degree at university to fucking nearly 10 years of like 
feeling like killing myself and like mm. being an absolute mess. And then I'd, I would have, as I put myself back together, all these different insights and revelations. And I had some really nice relationships with some really, really, really wonderful women. But I had a couple of really bad ones too with, with women that I gravitated towards who, again, recreated those dynamics, right? Mm. Had really bad mental health who would lie and cheat and carry on and abuse substances by my back. And like, it made me fucking all the crazier. Right. And it took me to get to like a real rock bottom, a real rock bottom where I just didn't want to, I don't want to be here anymore, man. Like Mm -hmm. I, I really felt like, fuck, I'm done with this. Like the pain is what stands out in one's memory more. It's very strange. Right. Like, it's not really like scars for happiness. I quote a, a lot. It's all the painful things that, that stick out. And all I could think of was all the painful shit that I'd been through. Right. Mm. And while I never tried to kill myself, like I really thought about killing myself, you know, a lot. I didn't sleep. Mm. I was fucking just this depressed sack of shit for a long time, mm. missing heaps of work, all this sort of stuff. You know, I hit this rock bottom. And it was like the best thing that ever happened to me, really, in lots of ways, right? Like losing all hope is kind of like the sense of freedom. Like I've got to fucking do something. Mm. And this is like I'm trying to give you like a linear narrative for storytelling purposes, but there's lots of ebbs and flows that went with this, lots of moments of clarity and insight and learning. And anyway, I went back to a psychologist and, and who I'd been working with for some time trying to process my divorce. And she really helped get me better. Mm. I stopped taking the Xanax that they've had fucking given me and enrolled in my first full marathon and went back to the life of being a fighter. Like Mm. being a professional fighter gives you a very structured life. And while I retired from fighting in 2013, when I was very depressed, um, I suppose, well, in ebbs and flows of depression, I... um, kind of drifted away from the lifestyle right like just ate whatever didn't train as much like but i started just living the life again man and that's what mm. i've continued to do because it's the structure and the and the, the the physiological rewards and the psychological pharmaceutical rewards that come with the exercise mm. the community the sense of belonging the sense of purpose all these things evidence has now shown me as well as my lived experience are fucking good for your mental fitness and well-being <laughs> and so um yeah the last five years in particular have been this real intentional journey of continuing to build a life that Mm. stays well right yeah because um i had to put myself back together Mm. and i guess i'm grateful for the fact that as a teenager and a man in my 20s i built a good scaffolding around myself Mm. which was essentially based in sport but also um the community that came from the music culture that i grew up in which was like the hardcore straight edge punk rock scene right Mm. and so those two things were in hindsight a subconscious protective factor Mm. so when my life fucking i won't say fell to bits because that takes agency out of it when i destroyed my life Mm. when i threw dynamite into my life to make it chaotic and insane um I could claw myself back up Mm. on the good scaffolding that I'd had the uh, wherewithal to somehow magically build around myself as a kid. Right. Mm. 
you know, my childhood didn't have, like my childhood wasn't all bad. Like I wasn't tortured or raped or sexually abused. Cause I work with kids like that now in the gym. Right. Like, yeah. uh, like I will like the stories I hear in my day to day work are fucking heartbreaking. And my childhood wasn't like that, hmm. but it's not healthy. What I grew up with and, no one should have to visit their parents in rehab or see the police take them away or hit them, right? Yeah. So I didn't have that. And I built the structure that we know to be good for developmental purposes, mm. sort of subconsciously. Like I yeah. went to martial arts and as a 13-year-old boy, I had walk an hour each way to go do like precepts on my knuckles on a fucking hardwood floor <laughs> and get like blood noses and like kicked in teeth and all this shit. And I'm fucking so grateful for that, right? Like, it was, if I hadn't done that, then the other alternative is what my friends got into, which is like drugs and and booze and like, Mm. and like fighting outside of the gym, right? Like, in our pathway to manhood, we would go out to parties and shit and like, want to talk to girls, but be too insecure and there'd be some other dudes who are equally as insecure and they'd turn up and they'd be like, fuck, what are you looking at? And mm. you'd be like, fuck, what are you looking at? And then it's just like, you just have a fist fight, man. And mm. like, it was wild when I think about it. Like you come from Colombia, right? And Argentina. Like, uh, Argentina. Sorry. No, Argentina. Right. But like, uh, I apologize. But like, when I think about violence within like the Latin American context and New Zealand context, these are different things, right? Mm. You know, like Argentina had like a, a, a like a military revolution and a dictatorship and like a long history of political violence, right? It's not like that, but it was still violence. And so that's how I could have turned out, I think, right? And I carry that with me today, not because I'm stuck in this space, but because it's a trauma-informed approach to the work that I do. If I can't go into a prison or if I can't go into a school or I can't go into talk to the police or the military or whatever and say, look, I know what it's like to like get in a fight or want to fucking kick someone's teeth in, like, then I'm still going to listen to me. Yeah. I'm just like, have you read the fucking handbook for like masculinities? <laughs> like, this is what um, Kimmel and Connell say about like manhood, right? People are like, whatever, motherfucker. Like, I don't give a fuck, right? If you can mm. meet people where they are, you're far better place to help them on their journey if that's your desire, right? Yes, definitely. Like, I, I don't have that. Like, I, I've, as I had a very different um, life experience, and a lot of times, and I know this, there's people that, of course, won't relate to me because I haven't experienced that. And, and I can share, you know, a different perspective. I can share different things, but there's so much of, of, of that power of being able to really to to get role models or people that more than a role model someone that can give you some framework or some understandings based on you know i've had some shitty experiences i've had these challenges and i'm dealing with them and i think that some of one of the things that you mentioned there that was really really important is taking responsibility and agency for the part that we play um, mm. in all of that because yes we have all of that trauma. Yes, we have all of those things that happen to us. And that, of course, is going to uh, inform how we behave later on. At the same time, we 
can actually take that on or not. And, and the more that we have um, frameworks and education and, and behaviors that are going to be um, helpful for us to be able to deal with things, it makes things easier. That doesn't mean that life is going to be easy. But one of the things for me that I know based on my upbringing, based on the work that I do, is all of the time trying to, you know, and you said this, that hitting rock bottom, I'm trying to get people not to get to that point. Yeah. Because yes, it is a wonderful place to to be on once you're on the other side. But a lot of people actually don't make it on the other side. A lot of people that rock bottom is it's out. That's it. So um like trying to educate people, it's so important. And and having conversations like this and, and having and you know, I'm really grateful that you're open to sharing that you had depression, that you had suicidal thoughts, that you had all of these challenges in your life, because then this also gives people permission to talk about their own stuff and to be able to, once we acknowledge, oh, there's stuff there, what can I do to actually deal with this? Yeah, I think, and I think that's where, I think we're at this great point where we're doing that. And this is, this is maybe a bit nuanced. But I think we also have to be um, important not to romanticize it because increasingly I see younger people put all their suffering into their bio on Instagram and it becomes like their personal brand. Mm. And, and if, if, if all you are is your, if you build your identity around your mental health issues or your suffering and your struggle, there's no impetus to heal and change and move forwards to that place of a life that's more stable. Mm. And I too have to be mindful of the stories I tell myself that even at, you know, I'm 41 now, I'm I'm not who I was. Like it, it's part of who I am, but it's not who I was. Like my mm. life's fucking great. I have a fucking beautiful partner and a beautiful stepson and like I'm respected in my field and like, fuck life's cool man like <laughs> like do you know what i mean like yeah. i have like my own internal narratives which will tell me that life's not cool sometimes but that's not an objective truth like by by and large my life's fucking great and i'm really fucking fortunate and privileged and lucky and that doesn't mean that i haven't worked really fucking hard to be where i am because i have yeah. but i have to keep in mind that shit's pretty good yeah mm. cool, you know <laughs> And I feel that um, a lot of people want the valorization and um, affirmation, which comes from being a victim. And that might rub some people the wrong way, but it's an, it's a, it's an observation that I'm starting to see shared more and more among other social commentators or social observers Mm. or people that I talk with, you know, Mm. when, when you're so, married to your wounding that and that's kind of like the basis of your personal brand that's a bad thing Mm. because it encourages all the other people looking at you to fucking stay wounded and not and not to like do the hard graft to get better yeah Mm. and unfortunately now you can build a huge brand on on your dysfunctionality you can monetize it right Mm you can monetize it and that's a real worry i was talking to someone in the comment section recently about this 
that, you know, when it comes to like outrage culture and cancel culture and all things which I think are reflective of sick psyche mm. or dysfunctionality culturally and personally, like the algorithm monetizes that. Yeah. Huge corporations. This might sound a bit meta. Some people are like, what, dude? But like huge corporations make billions and billions of dollars by keeping us glued to our screens. And what keeps us glued to our screens is the emotional response we get to what we're soaking up. And what the emotional response has been that provokes our addiction to social media or anti-social media, as I like to preface it, is outrage. You know, like, and people who are searching for a sense of self and who do have a painful internal dissonance or have really terrible histories of trauma or, or mental illness or personality disorders or any number of things mm. or just a bit dissatisfied and fucking lonely, they can not only build an identity based on all of those things online and then develop a very curated version of themselves online because mm. it because no matter how honest you are online and i try to be very honest it's still fucking it's still online it's not all <laughs> of me right it's not like every aspect of my personality good and bad and um and that's what i think increasingly more and more people are doing i think it's mm. going to change eventually but for the time being it's really detrimental yeah. To, it's detrimental to us as individuals and it's hugely detrimental to us societally Yeah, because we shouldn't be, there shouldn't be a primacy towards the negative. There should be a primacy towards optimism and hope and joy and offering solutions and not just like pointing out problems. Mm. But awareness raising is great. Education is great. Yeah, the world has got all these issues. But what are you going to do about them? Yeah, you know, and that is that is one of the the biggest things for me that I do with with my work, uh, not only through conscious action, but when I'm working, you know, one on one with people. Um, there's so many different things in there that it's like, yeah, okay, like yes, this happened. Yes, this is what we are. How are you going to relate to that? Because as you are saying, lots of us what end up doing is we. St- we start to identify ourselves as those things instead of saying like, oh, you know, like I, I was talking with one of my clients that was dealing with depression and suicide. And I was like, well, there is depression in your experience. You are not depressed. There is expression, uh, depression in your experience. There's suicidal thoughts in your experience. How are you relating to that? Are you identifying as that or not? And and of course, this takes work, this takes awareness, but this takes action and responsibility and being able to to understand it and to be able to move past that. Because in in my years of experience uh, working in, in this space, there's a, a lot, and this is something that you touched on before, everything that has been quote-unquote negative is more in our awareness because everything that comes from that is um, more intense 
energy. So everything that is going to be more intensified is going to be there for us. I'm not going to, to be thinking all of the time on all of these nice little things that happen when this one thing that was really hard and negative happened. That is going to be more in my awareness. The same as with a lot of people, and I see this in social media, really nice, nice, nice comments, and then one person like negative and suddenly pow, all of the energy goes into that, you know, like, and it's like, well, that is how we are wired. And the light things, they're just light. And the, and the heavier things, it's heavier. We're going to gravitate towards the heavier. And how do we deal with that? That is really, really important. And I know, Richard, like we could be talking about all of this for hours, but I want to be a respect for your time. What are some things that people can do based on your experience and based on, on what you see, like what are some easy, I wouldn't say easy, what are some things that you think that people can start to incorporate if they haven't yet in their toolkit for dealing with things? If we're talking about things as in like keeping mentally well and like yeah. dealing with like mood-based disorders like anxiety or depression or, or grief mm. or stress. Yo, man, it, it sounds simple, but apparently it's like really complicated. It's lifestyle factors. And, and there'll be super woke people on Twitter who critique this response. And they're like, you can't just like will your way out of depression. Well, fucking science says that you can do shit that mm. gets you out of it. So things like meditation. If you practice meditation, really good for your mental wellness, your mental fitness. If you put in regular exercise every single day, really good for your mental your mental health. If you eat healthy and natural foods regularly, excellent for your moods because your moods affect your, your mental well-being. Like your food affects your mood. It's like not rocket science, but most people don't eat or they eat too much or they eat too much of the wrong things. And then as you get like fat and obese, again, that's not like body shaming like obesity is a contributing factor to poor mental health mm -hmm. and not to mention all other number of like life ending illnesses. If you uh, do your best to give back to society in some small way, it's really, really good for you. Like being kind and donating time or energy or, Uh, a skill that you might have to some sort of not-for-profit, some sort of charity, or even just people in your community or your family. Mm. That's really good for you. Human beings are social animals. We're tribal creatures. If we get excommunicated from the tribe, we feel terrible. We're meant to be, like, intimately connected with one another for our, to flourish. But increasingly, we have, like, a thousand followers on Instagram and, like, maybe one person that we can actually give a phone call to. Mm. Other simple things we can do is like not be online so much. And that's my, my bad habit. And that is what I do to sabotage my own mental health is I spend too much time on social media. Mm -hmm. But if we can divorce our sense of importance from our new likes, follows, retweets, shares, and like doom scrolling and soaking up all the bad fucking news all the time and the latest conspiracy theory, that's actually going to be really good for us. Get enough sunshine, go outside with your shirt off in your backyard, Like get fresh air, get into the ocean. Like cold therapy is really good. Get into the cold water, right? All these sorts of things are actually not out of the grasp of anyone, irrespective of like their skin color, their sexuality, their financial status. Yes, there are 
financial and structural causatives that make some of these things more difficult for some groups of people other than others. And, and, and the alcohol companies and junk food companies target like populations of color and, and, and marginalized communities. And that's really bullshit. And that's why we do need like political and structural changes to happen in that space. But yeah. all people can go for a walk and drink water and go to bed earlier and and work to help one another do these sorts of things and come together as communities. Yeah. You know, more deeply, it is about having conversations like this with your family. Why is dad the way he is? You know, like what happened to my grandfather or like what's great granddad who went away and we don't know his name? What's his story? And when we can like understand what happened before us, it's easy to know where we're going, right? Like it's like a roadmap, understanding our past. You know, when we think about, you know, like who we are now, there is a whole history of 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 people behind us who in some way affect our how we show up in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Understanding that helps us make better sense of ourselves. And it's like you talked about, we can start making decisions rather than just reactions. And that's what I really love about your practices, Brian, is that you know, I tend to go head first, right? And then I'm trying to change that. I do everything through like like force of will and intellect and like uh, psychological understandings and, you know, literature and academia. And that's kind of worked for me to some mm. point. But there's so much that I think we would get if we could do what you're doing, meditation, Buddhist practices, tens of thousands of years of spiritual practice and teachings have got so much for us, but we kind of like sidelined them as a bit woo woo and out there. And that's why I'm grateful to, you know, Claire, my partner and like for reintroducing me to them mm-hmm. because I did used to have some interest in like Buddhism and I read the Dalai Lama's books and have this cursory knowledge. I was like, Oh, that makes sense. Well, <laughs> right. But then you drift away from them. Mm-hmm. Those sorts of things are beautiful. Right. Yeah. So all those sorts of things take effort and they take consistent practice. And actually we tend to only look for those sort of solutions when we're sick, but it's like, how do we do them all the time and normalize them so that we don't get sick? And that's yeah. where the, the rub lies. And that's, you know, more macroly, that's where I get annoyed, right? Mm. The capitalist enterprises don't make any fucking money off us being well or mm. being happy. Mm. Right? They want us like at the bottle shop, shopping all the time for cars that we can't afford, glued to our iPhones, uh, arguing over superficial changes. And, yeah. and I'm not entirely sure what the answer is there, but I do know that if we can be physically, mentally, societally, emotionally healthy, keep our community our whānau healthy, then that's a start, man. Mm. Yeah, and that's so beautiful because, yes, there is no one answer. We're all different. We all will need different um, ways of understanding and different strategies. Um, and there's so much that we've been conditioned. And as you say, this is one of the interesting things always for me. Most of these um, tools, they are free. Most of the lifestyle like, things that you're saying, they are free. Um, but... The problem is that if we are caught up in these loops of trauma and these loops of survival mode, then of course we're not going to be able to even understand that's a possibility. 
and then we're being caught up in, in that uh, race and, and that cycle that is unhelpful. And we need to somehow find a way to cut that circle and to be able to to do that. And a lot of times that takes, you know, like listening to someone or, or you showing up at a school and talking and and actually planting a seed to a kid. And it's like, oh, actually, you know, all of these ideas that I had of, of how I need to fit in, actually, they might not be helpful. And, and then they can start to do things. But as you say, like, this is, this is a lot of work that needs to happen on a lot of different perspectives. And I think that from my experience is when we start to, to look in and when we start to look out, the symptoms are showing us the disconnection and we need to reconnect and to be able to, to understand that we're all different. How do we reconnect? What is the way to do that so that it's helpful and doesn't take our entire life to get to that place? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's why what you're doing is helpful, right? As I want to say this earlier is that we've had different lived experiences but neither of them are more valid, right? Yeah. Like you have a different approach to healing and helping people grow and, than I do, but we're both heading towards the same direction. And that's, that's it. Like there are so many different routes to helping people be healthy and happy and develop self-knowledge. And one way isn't better than the other. No. And, and it's about, you know, people hit me up for information or whatever. And I'm like, oh, I, I don't really know. Or this guy would be better at that than I would or take this with a grain of salt this is how I do it but that's not for everyone right so yeah I think it's just about we're all different parts of the jigsaw puzzle and we just need to keep playing the game mm, yes definitely thank you so much Richie for for this conversation it has been wonderful there's so much more that I would love to to unpack uh for anyone that wants to go online uh, or find whenever which is doing more talks i i love especially like some of the your talks on on alcohol and and pornography and all of that side of uh, our behaviors especially um that are not that helpful for our de development and i know that if we would talk about that this would go like for five more hours <laughs> <laughs> uh, which i would love to but and like mm -hmm. we all need to to do stuff so yeah cool. like check it out i will put some links on the on the comments or uh, with with the show notes so that you can find it easily thanks richie once more and and thanks everyone for listening you're welcome thanks for having me brian it was a pleasure cheers what did you like the most about this episode take a moment to think about what change you can make in your life today Share your conscious action on social media using hashtag conscious action and tagging at conscious action and said so we can celebrate your impact on the world and create a ripple effect. One easy action we would love for you to take right now is to share, like and subscribe to this podcast. This will help us get these messages out into the world and inspire more people to take conscious action in their own lives, contributing to the better world we hope for.